0: Family, good morning. Once again, uh, let me invite you to find your seat. And as you find your seat, uh, if you would open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter nine. Uh, we're continuing our study of the Gospel of Mark. Last week we began part one of a story, and this morning we're going to get to part two of it. Uh, Mark nine twenty-two to twenty-nine. The title of the sermon comes directly from the words of the Father in the story, which is, I believe, help my unbelief. So let's read the text. I'll open this in a word of prayer, and we'll jump into the sermon this morning. Mark chapter 9, beginning in verse 22. And this is the Father speaking. He's answering Jesus' question of how long has it been happening to him. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, you mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. After crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse. So that most of them said, he is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. You will pray with me. God, as we continue to uh, look at the second half of this story this morning, I pray, Lord, that you would help us to, um, to humbly confess in our own hearts, Lord, that, that we have faith, but we recognize that so often in our life, it's not where it should be, that the faith is there and yet it is lacking and we desire God for our faith to, uh, to, to grow, to, to be robust and, um, and to be strong and confident in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us this morning to do as the Father does, to cry out to you, help us, God. Help our unbelief. Help us to believe your word. Help us to believe that you desire to have compassion on us. I pray, God, that you would do this work, this miracle this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, this morning, uh, we are, as I mentioned earlier, uh, looking at the second half of a story that we looked at last week, and I, as I mentioned last week, I wanted to do the whole thing in one sermon, but the sermon would have been like two hours long, and so I just felt the need to divide it into two parts, and so uh, I'm going to give the context of, if you weren't here last week, uh, of where we were, and then we'll do exposition, and then I'll give us application, I think I have uh, seven or eight, I can't remember exactly, I'll mention it when we get there. Uh, points of application for us this morning. So let me give the context. uh, So we're all up to speed here. Last week, uh, we saw that Jesus had came down from the mountain. He went up the mountain to reveal his glory to three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John. And now he's come down the mountain and they have rejoined the other nine disciples who remained at the base of the mountain. And when he gets there, he discovers that the nine disciples are engaged in an argument with the scribes. Jesus asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And a man all of a sudden speaks up and says that he brought his son because his son is demon possessed, has an unclean spirit. The father had brought him to Jesus, but Jesus was not there. Jesus is up on the mountain. And so he asked the nine disciples, he says, can you guys cast it out? But in an unexpected twist, they're not able to. They can't cast out the demon. And so Jesus tells the father, he says, bring your son to me. And as soon as the demon sees Jesus, it begins to attack this boy. And that's what we're going to pick up this morning. Now, last week I covered verse 22, but I want to cover it again because it's connected. Verse 22 and 23 are connected together. And so I want to cover verse 22. So let's start there with our exposition of the text in verse 22. Where the father says, it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. So the father says that this demon has been oppressing his son since childhood. It has tried burning him. It has tried drowning him because it wants to destroy this boy. And then the father says something that is quite interesting. He says, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Now I want to contrast the father's statement with the leper's statement in Mark 1.40. The leper says to Jesus, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The Father says, if you can, please help us. Now, Jesus picks up on this. Jesus picks up on the Father's lack of faith because look at what he says. Look at verse 23. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus turns to the Father and says, if you can. Now, there are two ways to read this. Number one, you can read it with a question mark. That's how the NASB, the NIV, the Net Bible and the CSB. See, the ESV puts an exclamation point there. But most translations put a question mark there. There's no there's no punctuation in the original language. They uh translators have to decide. And so if it's meant to be a question mark, which I think is very possible, Jesus, what Jesus is doing here is he is quoting the Father back to the Father. He's essentially saying, if you can. The Father's like, if you can. And Jesus is like, if you can. The other way to read it is as a statement, which would be translated like this. Jesus is saying, so far as your if you can statement is concerned, I tell you all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus is essentially saying, look, in with regard to your statement, if you can, all things are possible for the one who believes. See, Jesus doesn't let this statement go. Why? Because he realizes that it reflects a lack of faith on the father's part. Jesus doesn't want the father to think that this is a matter of whether he can do it or not. In other words, Jesus doesn't try to do anything. He either does it or he doesn't. There's no middle ground. And then Jesus exhorts this father's little faith. He says, all things are possible for the one who believes. Jesus will later say to the disciples, with man, it is impossible, but not with God For all things are possible with God, Mark 10, 27. Now, I want you to notice that Jesus attaches a condition to his statement. And the condition is this. He says, all things are possible. What's the condition? For one who believes. Now, this is not to suggest that God's omnipotence is contingent on our faith. God's omnipotence is not conditioned on our faith, but it is to suggest that God's willingness is contingent on our faith. His willingness is. Now, one side note that I want to point out. Did you notice that Jesus doesn't say all things are guaranteed? He doesn't say all things are promised for the one who believes. He says all things are possible for the one who believes. That's important to notice. Not all things are guaranteed. Not all things are, prom- are promised. Look at verse 24. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. Now, in response to Jesus' statement, the father cries out. The word that's used ever cry out means like he's exclaiming this with, with emotion and with passion. He is crying out. Why? Because remember, Jesus just told him there's a condition to this. There's a condition. the father is desperate for his son to be healed. He has dealt with this for who knows how many years. And so he is so desperate. When he hears this condition, he says, I believe, I believe. He wants Jesus to know that I believe. But he recognizes that his faith is not where it should be. He has enough self-awareness and enough humility to cry out, help my unbelief. I love that statement. I love this statement. I believe help my unbelief because it reflects human nature, doesn't it? It reminds me of what Walt Whitman wrote. Do I contradict myself? Very well then I contradict myself. I am large, I contain multitudes. This is such a contradicting statement, isn't it? And yet it is true at the same time. He says, "Pastuo." I believe. Help my apostia, my unbelief. How do we make sense of this statement? How do we make sense of this con- seeming contradiction? You see, the father is confessing that he has a measure of faith. He confesses that I believe, I have a measure of faith. This is clearly evident in the fact that he brought his son to Jesus. Had he no faith at all, he would have never brought his son to Jesus to begin with. He has a measure of faith, but he also recognizes, he says, my faith is not where it should be. His faith is not where the centurion's faith is. The centurion said, look, you don't even need to come to my house. Just say the word and my servant will be healed. He recognizes my faith is not there. It's not there yet. So what does the father do? What do you do when you realize your faith is not where it should be? Does he try to work up faith in his heart? Is there like a, a wheel in his heart that he can start running in and start generating faith in his heart? Does, does he try real hard? He's like, believe harder, believe harder, believe harder. What, what does he do? No, no. Notice what he does. He cries out, help my unbelief. You see, this is a prayer to not just heal his son, but to heal his faith. You see, at the center of this story, at the very core of this story is not a battle against demons. It's a battle against unbelief. Look at verse 25. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, say to it, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Now there's this crowd here. It's unclear if this is the same crowd in verses 14 to 15. It may be, meaning Jesus would have taken the boy and his father aside from the crowd, and then now the crowd's rushing back to him. It's possible. Or this could be a brand new crowd that's coming to, 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 to witness this. Jesus sees this crowd, either way, and, and he wants to avoid unnecessary attention. Jesus does not want to draw unnecessary attention. So before the crowd gets there, he rebukes the unclean spirit. He says, you mute and deaf spirit. Now that can mean either of the two. It can mean the spirit itself was mute and deaf. There are many who believe that demons, the reason this boy is mute and deaf is because the demon is mute and deaf. It also could mean just that the the demon causes muteness and deafness. You could take it either way, either are possible. Jesus says to the demon, I command you. I love that. Jesus is able to command demons. Jesus commands this spirit, come out of him and never enter him again. Now, Mark is the only gospel writer that includes that last detail. Why does Jesus say this? Because demons can leave people and they can come back to the same person. Jesus said this in Matthew 12, 43 to 44. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking somewhere to rest. It finds none, and then it says, I will return to the house from which I came. You see, Jesus is so compassionate to this father and to this boy that not only did he give him healing from the demon, he also gave him a promise. This Demon is never coming back. Ever. Look at verse 26 27. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand, lifted him up, and he arose. Now, if you remember, as I said last week, demons do not easily give up ground that they have won. Brace for the storm before the calm. The demon puts up one last fight, perhaps his most violent. The demon cries out, convulses him terribly, and then he is forced to come out. Why is he forced to come out? Because when Jesus says, come out, dead men come out of tombs, and demons come out of bodies. This last attack was so violent that the boy was like a corpse. So much so that everybody, or most everybody in the crowd thought he was dead. Now, can you imagine what the father thought in this moment? His boy is lying on the ground. He looks like a corpse. Most everybody in the crowd is saying he's dead. Did Jesus cast out the demon Only to kill his son? Surely this was a test of the father's faith. He said, I believe. How sure is your belief? Jesus reaches down, takes the boy by the hand, lifts him up, and he arose. You know that word arose there? It's the same word as resurrect. Mark uses resurrection language here, which may, may imply that the boy did in fact die and Jesus raised him from the dead. We don't know. It's possible. Look at verse 28. And when he had entered this house, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? Afterward, they go to a house which we don't know which house. I assume maybe the father's house. Maybe the father invited him over for a meal. And the nine disciples, while they're there, they have this lingering question in their minds, just kind of spinning in their mind. And so they pull Jesus aside to a private conversation. They pull him aside and, and they're like, hey, Jesus, um, we have a question. Why couldn't we cast it out? What? Why couldn't we do that, do this? I didn't mention this last week, but can you imagine the public humiliation to try to cast out this demon in front of everybody and then not be able? Especially, I mean, we don't know, but imagine if they like, you know, almost pridefully, you know, that they're like, where's Jesus? One to cast out this demon? And he's like, oh, he's up on the mountain. Don't, don't, I got this, guys. Don't worry. You imagine the humiliation to try to cast out a demon in front of an entire crowd and then you can't do it? And so they want to know, why couldn't we? Why couldn't we do it? And as I mentioned last week in Mark 6, 7, Jesus had given them authority over unclean spirits. They had previously done this. They had probably done this many times. And it appears they assumed they still had this authority. But now they're unable to do it. And so they're perplexed. They're like, why couldn't we do something that we have previously done? So why couldn't they do it? Look at verse 29. And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now, Matthew and Mark record two different answers from Jesus. I assume both are true. I assume Jesus said both statements. Mark recorded one. Matthew recorded the other. Jesus' statement in Mark This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Jesus' statement in Matthew, because of your little faith. Let's unpack Jesus' statement in Mark. First, Jesus says, this kind. The Greek word for kind there is genos. It's translated nine different ways in the New Testament. Here it means class or species. Which then raises the question, are there different kinds? Are there different classes, different species of demons? It would appear, yes. It would appear that there are. So it appears that some kinds, some classes of demons can be cast out with prophetic words, which they had previously done. But other kinds, other classes of demons cannot be driven out except by one thing. Prayer. Prayer. Now this is interesting because if we put Jesus' statement in Matthew and Jesus' statement in Mark and we put them together, I think Jesus is saying that they could not cast out this demon because of their little faith, and their little faith was evidenced in their lack of prayer. I think that's how we put those two together. It appears that the disciples had tried to cast out the demon in their own power, forgetting that apart from prayer, we can do nothing. Let's look at our application. Application of the text. I have eight exhortations. Eight exhortations. Number one, our prayers, even in the smallest of statements, reveal where our faith lies. Our prayers, even in the smallest of statements, reveals where our faith lies. The Father's statement to Jesus, but if you can do anything, that statement, what's wrong with that statement? There's actually nothing wrong with the statement, except for one word. Only one word is wrong in that statement. What's the word, church family? If. Or I guess, I guess maybe you could choose a different word. <laughs> what is the difference between saying, but if you can do anything, and but since you can do anything? Everything. One word reveals where the Father's faith lies. One word. Over the past 20 years, 20 plus years, I've listened to people pray and they've listened to me pray. Something I've realized over these two decades plus is this. A person's prayers is always the measuring stick of their faith. You hear it. How we pray testifies to where our faith is. Two, all things are literally possible with God, not just theoretically. All things are literally possible with God, not just theoretically. You ever been talking to someone who was facing an impossible situation? Uh, They felt hopeless. They felt discouraged because it seems like an impossible situation. And if you told them this statement, well, all things are possible for the one who believes. What is the response you often get back? Well, yeah, yeah, I know that all things are possible. You ever been guilty of saying that? You ever been guilty of thinking that? I know I have. What are we saying when we say that? When we, what are we saying? Here's what we're saying. Yes, I know theoretically all things are possible with God. But in reality, it's not going to happen. That's what we're saying, right? Yes, I know theoretically all things are possible with God. But in reality, it's not going to happen. When Jesus says all things are possible for the one who believes, that's not a metaphor. It's not hyperbole. It's not a slogan. It's not poetry. It is a reality. It's a reality. I want you to notice what Jesus doesn't say. He doesn't say this one thing is possible. He doesn't say some things are possible. He doesn't say most things are possible. He says all, all things are possible. Literally all things. And yes, if we have any smart Alex, like can you make a square circle? That's not a thing to do. That's gibberish. All things are possible. There is a difference between believing this statement at a theoretical level see many of all of us probably especially if you're in Christ all of us believe this at a theoretical level there is a difference between believing that at a theoretical level and believing it in your bones believing it in your soul where it affects how we live that I live in such a way that I genuinely, down in my bones, in my soul, I believe that everything is possible with God. God intends for us to believe it that way, not just theoretically. Brother and sister, do you need God to work the impossible in your life? All things are possible for the one who believes. Three, faith is not a sufficient condition for a miracle, but it is a necessary one. Faith is not a sufficient condition for a miracle, but it is a necessary one. In some Christian circles, they teach a damaging theology that the reason God doesn't work a miracle in our life is because we don't have faith. Or enough faith. In other words, like suppose your spouse gets terminal cancer. Doctor tells you your spouse has uh, terminal cancer. They'll die in six months or less. This theology would teach that God will heal your spouse if you have faith. Or if you have enough faith. But if your spouse dies, if God didn't heal your spouse, it's because you didn't have faith or you didn't have enough faith. The Bible never teaches this. Never teaches this. Faith is not a sufficient condition for a miracle, but it is a necessary one. Meaning, faith is not a guarantee that God will work a miracle, but a lack of faith is all but a guarantee that God will not. Jesus says all things are possible. For who? For who? For the one who believes. Literally, one who faiths. There's, it's a verb there. Faith can be a verb in, in the Greek. Jesus makes this clear in his word, Matthew 21, 21 to 22. He says, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and you do not doubt, you will not only do what has been done to this fig tree, but you will even say to this mountain, be taken up and thrown into the sea and it will happen. And whatever you ask in prayer, you will receive if what? If you have faith. Now, let me, let me be clear about this. If some Christian circles are guilty of making faith a sufficient condition for a miracle, and they are, and it's not a sufficient condition for a miracle, if some circles are guilty of doing that, let's not be guilty of removing faith as a necessary condition for a miracle. Does that make sense? Some circles are guilty of making it a sufficient condition for a miracle, and it's not. But we don't want to be guilty of removing it as a necessary condition for a miracle. James says, let him ask in faith with no doubting, for that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. Brothers and sisters, faith is necessary for God to answer our prayers. It is necessary. Do not think that it doesn't matter. God's going to do what he's going to do. No, God is going to do what he's going to do according to his word, which is if you have faith. If you have faith. Four. Faith is like a fire All God needs is an ember. Faith is like a fire. All God needs is an ember. You ever built a fire? Anybody here ever built a fire? A few? I love building fires. I I, I love it. I I love making big fires. Like, like, Like the bigger, the better. Faith is a lot like fires. Sometimes it's raging. Sometimes it's dying. But here's the thing about fires. This is the wonderful thing about fires. You can always get a raging fire so long as you have an ember. Even if you had a raging fire and now it's dying, you can always get back to the place of a raging fire so long as you have an ember. Even if it is a very small ember, if it is hot enough, all you have to do is add fuel to it it'll catch. First some straw, then some leaves, then some small branches, then the logs. You got a raging fire. You see, the same is true of our faith in God. God does not need our faith to be a raging fire. He just needs an ember. He just needs An ember. When Jesus says all things are possible for the one who believes, I love the Father's response. What does he say? I believe. In other words, he looks internally at his campfire and he looks at it and he realizes that his fire is small. It's a small fire. But he also recognizes, but I have an ember. I do. I have an ember. It's there. I believe. And God will work with that. God will work with that. Faith doesn't have to be perfect, just present. God does not require perfect faith, just present faith. If you look at the fire of your faith, other words today tomorrow a year from now you look at your the fire of your faith don't grow discouraged over how small it is say to God I believe I do God I believe God and he will work with that ember he will he will add fuel to it what's these how does he do that it's number five The first step of faith is to ask for faith. The first step of faith is to ask for faith. When Jesus says all things are possible for the one who believes, the father has three possible responses, right? When Jesus says that, there are three ways he could respond. A, he could respond with a boastful confidence. He could say all things are possible for the one who believes. Well, I do believe, check. All right, now what? He can respond with a boastful confidence. B, he can respond with a discouraged hopelessness. (sighs) I have unbelief. I don't believe the way that I should. I guess you're not going to heal my son. Hmm. Or C, he could have a confident asking and an asking for confidence. When the father looks inward at his own faith, he neither responds with a boastful confidence or with a discouraged hopelessness. He simply takes the first step of faith, which is always to ask for faith. I believe. Help. Help. Help my unbelief. You see, faith is a gift. It's a gift of grace. Faith is not something that we can muster up on our own. It has to be given to us. We must not think that I can work it up, that I can somehow churn it up in in our soul and and, and it'll be there. It doesn't work like that. We ask. We ask. D.L. Moody said that there were three kinds of faith. There is struggling faith, like a man in deep water desperately swimming. Clinging faith, like a man hanging to the side of a boat. And resting faith, like a man safely within the boat and able to reach out and help others get in. You see, everybody all throughout their Christian life moves between these three stages. We all move between them. And when we find ourselves like with struggling faith, like this father, this father's having struggling faith, the best thing to do is not to swim harder. When we are struggling in our faith, the best thing to do is not to say, I just need to swim harder. What's the best thing to do? Best thing to do is to call out to the captain of the boat. Will you help me? will you help me cling to the boat? Will you help me get in the boat? The first step of faith is to ask for faith. Six. When Jesus commands sin to stop, not only will it stop, it will never enslave again. When Jesus commands sin to stop, not only will it stop, it will never enslave again. Jesus tells the demon, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. Can you imagine if you were this father? For over a decade, maybe two, you have constantly had to watch your son every day of his life to make sure this demon doesn't kill your son. You've watched him The demon throw him into fire to kill him you've watched the demon throw him into water to kill him and every day of your life you've had to protect your son to make sure this demon doesn't kill your son and then one day the demon is gone it's gone because jesus said i command you come out of him now imagine if that's all jesus said that's all he said what would be the temptation You see, I would go to bed every night wondering, is it coming back? What if it comes back? It's not as though I can lock my door. There are no locks for demons. It's not as though I can stand at my son's bedroom door with a spear and a sword in my hand and I'm going to fight this demon off. You cannot fight demons like that. What if the demon comes back? It will never come back. It will never come back. Why? Because Jesus said, never enter him again. This demon's never coming back. When Jesus commands sin to stop, not only will it stop, it will never enslave again. You see one of the hardest parts of sanctification this is true for all of us one of the hardest parts of sanctification is that when we have victory over sin in our life and then we relapse and then we have victory over sin in our life and then we relapse sometimes this pattern can go on for weeks months maybe even years now i don't want to downplay The responsibility that we all have in Christ to put our sin to death. We have that responsibility to put our sin to death. However, I also want to testify to the reality that when Jesus says, stop, you will stop. You will stop. You will never give yourself over to the slavery of this sin again. Whether it is anger or jealousy or unforgiveness or pornography or consumerism or greed or addiction or immorality, all it takes is for Jesus to say the word and this sin will stop. You will never be enslaved to it again, ever. The danger of gifts, experience, knowledge, and success is that we can believe the lie, I got this. The danger of gifts, experience, knowledge, and success is that we can believe the lie, I got this. Why couldn't the disciples cast out the demon? That's what the disciples wanted to know. Jesus responds in both Mark and Matthew that together leads us to believe that the disciples had fallen into the ubiquitous trap of self sufficiency. They had cast out demons in the past. Of course, they could do it in the present. Don't worry, we're experts at this, we've done this before. William Lane writes, The disciples had been tempted to believe that the gift that they had received from Jesus was in their control and could be exercised at their disposal. Their attitude springs from a subtle form of unbelief. When one has success, it encourages trust in oneself and one's techniques rather than in God. In other words, whenever we are given gifts, experience, knowledge, success, which are all good. Those are all good things. There comes the temptation. We can believe the lie. I got this. I got this. Christopher Marshall writes, self-confident optimism may feel like faith, but it is in fact unbelief because it disregards the prerequisite of human powerlessness and prayerful dependence on God. In other words, there's such a fine line. We are called to be confident in the Lord and sometimes that looks like faith and other times it's actually not faith at all. It's actually unbelief. Because we believe, I know know how to disciple. Hey, hey, I know how to preach a sermon. I know how to raise children. I know how to teach Sunday school. I, I, I know how to... I've led BBSs before. I know how to do this. We begin to believe the lie. I got this. I can do this. 8 last point. A mechanic is only as good as his tools. A Christian is only as good as his prayer life. A mechanic is only as good as his tools. A Christian is only as good as his prayer life. The disciples asked Jesus, why couldn't we cast it out? And Jesus said, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Do you know what that implies? What does that statement imply? What did the disciples not do? They didn't pray. There are some things in the Christian life that can only be accomplished through prayer. When I was first married, um, I wanted to learn how to fix things around the house, Uh, but I was a very poor mechanic or maintenance guy. Part of my problem was lack of knowledge, part was lack of training, part was lack of experience. But do you know what a huge problem was? I didn't even know it, but you know what a huge problem was? Lack of tools. I have realized over the years that many problems can be solved simply by having the right tool. One time I was trying to like get my, uh, this, this plate off of a, a fan. And, and I, I bought a whole tool set and I couldn't get it off. And I realized that it, had a, it, had a, a, it needed an H drive or some, some weird drive that I had to go to Lowe's and find it. And it, it would not come off without this particular drive. It doesn't matter how trained you are, how skilled you are, how knowledgeable you are. If you don't have the right tool, it's not getting fixed. A mechanic is only as good as his tools, and a Christian is only as good as his or her prayer life. Leonard Ravenhill said, no man is greater than his prayer life. Wow. Robert Murray McShane is even more harsh and true. What a man is on his knees before God, that he is and nothing more. See, these disciples were useless apart from prayer. Useless. And so are we. Had they prayed, I imagine this demon would have come out. Because Jesus didn't say, this kind only comes out by me. He didn't say that. He said, this kind comes out only by what? Prayer, meaning your prayers. James did not say, a righteous person has great power as he is working. See, often that's how we read that statement. That's not what he said. He didn't say a righteous person has great power as it is working. He said the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. A man or woman of God is only as good as his or her prayer life. Let's pray.